Okay, guys, good to see you. Uh, pull out your message notes. Uh, you should have those in your program this morning. We're going to continue in the Gospel of John. We are finishing up chapter 5. So John chapter 5, uh, really beginning, <clears throat> beginning in verse... We're going to be looking at verses 17 to 47. So we're going to be, uh, we're going to be um, looking at a lot of verses today. Now, here's the deal. I'm just going to warn you. This is going to be more of a head knowledge message than a heart transformative message, okay? So I really try my best to, like, like dig in and try to discover, like, authorial intent. Like, what is the big idea? What's the main meaning of the text? What is the author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing scripture, what are they saying, right? What, what truths are they conveying? And then how do we apply those truths to our lives? Today is going to be really, it's going to be a lot of head knowledge because I'm just like, I'm sticking with the text, right? We're just going to be walking through it. Um, this is really kind of like part two, um, kind of a continuation of what we were looking at last week. Um, so in, I'm not going to read, you know, all of the, um, all of the verses, but um, here we go. So if you remember, if you remember last week, we looked at uh, the story on the Sabbath, Jesus goes and uh, goes to the pool of Bethesda and he meets a man there who had been an invalid, crippled or paralyzed for 38 years. And we know that Jesus performs this amazing miracle and he heals him on a Sabbath day, which is like a, a holy day. Um, Sabbath day being the seventh day, a day of rest. It was a day that, that uh, was really to celebrate God as creator and creation. Um, the religious leaders got really upset about it because they were legalists, right? And for them, it was about, you know, obeying all of these man-made rules. And if you obey all these man-made rules, which were petty, by the way, which were not mentioned in the scriptures, uh, then somehow you can earn favor with God. And, and so you'll, you'll notice in, um, in verse 16 there was a shift that took place. So in verse 16 it says, kind of give you context, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So they were angry with Jesus. They wanted to kill him because they felt like he violated the Sabbath rules. Now this gave Christ an opportunity to really declare that he is indeed the Son of God. Now for us, it's kind of difficult to comprehend in our finite minds that God is fully man and he's also fully God. But this is the declaration of scripture. The gospel of John makes it very, very clear. This is the purpose of John's gospel. He's writing so that we would believe that Jesus is indeed the son of God. Now, Jesus was an anti-legalist. Legalism means law. We kind of unpacked this last week. And, um, you know, the people, the religious leaders, they were legalists. They were keeping rules and laws and, and man-made laws. Laws added to Scripture to earn God's favor. And, and we talked about legalism being an, an enemy of the gospel of grace. Legalism is rooted in pride. Legalism is about you know, really keeping a checklist and having a, 
hypercritical, negative, superior view of other people if they don't believe the same concerning gray matters, gray issues, non-essentials, right? There is freedom of Christ, in Christ. There are principles that, that really should govern what we believe and how we behave. But legalism defines the Christian life in terms of moralism rather than grace. It's about living a morally good life and maybe, just maybe, God will accept you. You know, Jesus, he really answers their concerns about the Sabbath. Look at verses 17 to 20. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. You know what he's telling the religious leaders? He's saying, my father is working. The reason, the reason they kept the Sabbath, this holy day, was that God created everything in six days, rested on the seventh. They understood they were supposed to rest on the seventh day. So God was like no longer at work. He was resting. So on the Sabbath day, they would rest. But Jesus drops this bombshell. He says, my father is still working. Now, not working in, in terms of work of creation, but working in this world. And they recognized what he was saying. Several things. Number one, to call God your father was just horrifying for the Jewish people. I mean, they did not reference God as Father. God was Yahweh, Jehovah, Almighty God. It was Jesus who introduced this language to us that, that God is, is, is our Father. And, and when Jesus made the statement, my Father's working, he's identifying himself with God. If God is his Father, then Jesus is the Son of God. Now, the word Son... Son of God occurs 13 times in John's gospel. Eight of those 13 times occurs right here in chapter five. So this is huge. Jesus has a lot to say about his identity, about who he is. And what he does is he brings witnesses, one witness to the stand, one at a time, to prove who he is, to prove his identity. So here's point number one, if you're taking notes. Jesus is equal with God the Father. You know, you'll, you'll notice that language in the passage that we just read a moment ago. They were angry with him. They were opposed to him because Jesus was, was calling God his Father, thus making him the Son of God and essentially equal with the Father. They understood the claim that he was making. Jesus understood the claim that he was making. This, what, this is what separates Christianity from all other world religions, Jesus claimed to be God. Joseph Smith didn't claim to be God. Buddha didn't claim to be God. Muhammad didn't claim to be God. Only Jesus claimed to be God. Only Jesus shed his blood and was crucified on a cross for those who would trust in him. And only Jesus 
was buried, and he rose again the third day. Only Christianity points to an empty tomb. So Jesus is equal with God the Father. This is the, this is the profound truth that Jesus is driving home. Number two, Jesus is the giver of life. He's the giver of life. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The religious leaders, they knew about God from the Old Testament. They believed that God had the power, had power over life and death. And Jesus makes this profound statement. He says, I have power over life and death. Here's point number three. Jesus is the judge of humanity. He's the judge of humanity. Look at verses 22 to 23. It says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So here you have these religious leaders. They believe that God was the judge, and everyone is accountable to God. This is why they, they were legalists. They felt like they were accountable, and they had to live their lives a certain way. Jesus is so clear here. He's telling the religious leaders, I am the judge. Did you notice what he said in the passage that we just read? If you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. You know, you have a, a plethora of worldviews. You have monotheistic religions, the belief that there's one God. You have polytheistic religions, there's many gods. And then you have in our culture, you know, relative, relativism. Truth is what you create, right? Truth is not discovered in the Bible. Truth is not subjective. I mean, truth is not objective. It's not fixed. It is subjective. You create it. You invent it. You live according to your truth. Your truth is your truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Jesus said, I am the embodiment of truth. My truth will set you free. Christianity claims an exclusive truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is what separates Christianity from all other world religions. Besides, many religions saying, well, there's many gods. No, Jesus said there's one God. One God triune, right? The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. God is one in three distinct separate persons. Now, do you fully understand that? Because I don't. And I've tried to understand it, right? But here's the deal. I don't want a God that I can fully understand. Like, I mean, he wouldn't be God. God is infinite, I'm finite, right? God is higher than my thoughts. Praise God for that. Right, And so for eternity, we're going to be worshiping and, and growing in knowledge and understanding of, of who God is. But Jesus makes a profound statement. If you want to honor God, you have to honor me. All religions will say, well, you know, most, religion, most religions will say, there's a God. There's a higher power. Well, here's the deal. Jesus said, if you want to honor this higher power, if you want to honor this God, Jesus calls him Father. If you want to honor God, you're going to honor me. And if you don't honor me, 
then you, you can't honor the Father. And so I find it ironic that so many religions are, are, are attempting to try to bring honor and reverence and, and worship to some sort of deity. But Jesus said, listen, you got to go through me. I'm the path. I'm the way. If you honor me, you honor the one who sent me. You know, the religious leaders, their whole life was a legalistic effort to honor God. And you know what Jesus did? He exposed their hearts. You know, it was just humanistic efforts to please God by works. And here's the point. It is not about effort. It's not about works. It's not about performance that's going to make you right with God. The religious leaders, man, they were just banking on external works, obeying these rules and, and regulations and traditions, and surely it'll be enough. But it's not enough. Being a good person is not enough. You have to come to Christ. Here's point number four. Jesus determines everyone's eternal destiny. Jesus determines everyone's eternal destiny. In verse 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That word uh, believes him. Whoever hears my word and believes him. That word believes in the Greek, it's a present tense, which means you have it now. You have it now. It's not something that's going to be given to you in the future. It's something that you have now in Christ. You know, these religious leaders, they knew the Old Testament, right? They, they knew the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They knew about Abraham, this great man of faith, the, the patriarch of, of their Jewish race and, and Judaism. But, and they also remember that Abraham, when, when God was revealing himself to him, I believe in Genesis chapter 17, Abraham believed God. When God showed Abraham the stars, and you know, your descendants will be as, as, as like the sand on the seashore and, and like stars in the heavens. It says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't circumcision. It wasn't works-based. He believed God. He believed God's word. He believed God's promise. And it was counted to him as righteousness. He was the progenitor of the Jewish race. You know, Abraham had faith in God. And because of his faith, it was counted to him as righteousness. And then comes Moses. Moses comes, and God calls Moses this great deliverer, the servant, this intercessor to go to God's people and, and to speak to Pharaoh and 400 years of slavery and, and bring God's people out of the house of bondage and oppression in Egypt. God was using Moses to be a mouthpiece. And what did Moses do? He made some excuses. We eventually know he went. He trusted God. There was so many plagues brought upon the, the nation of Egypt. And we know that God rescued his people and brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. We did a whole series on, on that. We looked at the book of Exodus and, and Numbers and a little bit of Deuteronomy. A little bit of Deuteronomy, not very much. And uh, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, right? The Decalogue, right? Actually, the Ten Words. We say Ten Commandments, but it's actually the Decalogue, the Ten Words. And so Moses gives these commandments to the Jewish people. And we know that God gave other commandments 
a, a part of the Mosaic law. And so what the rabbis did is they started concocting and creating these oral rules, these, these, all these other rules that would kind of supplement God's rules. And they were being passed down from one generation to the next. So Judaism shifted from faith in Yahweh to keeping commandments. It wasn't about your heart and genuine faith. For a lot of the Jewish people, it was about obeying all these rules. And Jesus comes along and says, listen, I came to fulfill the law in every possible way, in, in every imaginable sense, right? Jesus came to fulfill the sacrificial system. He came to give his life as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. He came to fulfill all the ceremonial laws, the dietary laws, right? We know that he came to fulfill all the judicial laws because through Christ, he bore all of our sin in his body. He, he God poured out his wrath upon his son. Jesus took the full measure, the full weight of God's wrath and justice and fury against our sin. Jesus fulfilled the law. He was perfect. One perfect life. He was able to make atonement for all of our sins. Jesus is very clear that salvation is not about keeping rules. It's about faith in Christ. He tells us in verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It's about believing in the son. Faith in the son produces eternal life. It's something that you have forever, but it's something that changes your life today. You know, when you, anybody remember the day they got saved? The day you encounter Christ? The, the day you said, I'm turning from my old way of life. I'm turning from my sin and I'm gonna turn to Christ by faith. I'm gonna follow him. God does an amazing work in that moment. You know, I like to say that we are uh, saved in a moment, sanctified over a lifetime. And, and the sanctification process is, is where God chips away at us. And sometimes that chipping away is painful. He's, he's, he's rub, he, he, he hits that spiritual uh, heavenly sandpaper and he's, he's roughing, he's, he's smoothing the rough edges of your life. Some of you may be experiencing that right now, right? Maybe God's bringing trials, maybe uh, suffering, setbacks, disappointments, struggles, right? In your life to smooth you, right? To sanctify you, to grow you up, to grow you in the grace and knowledge of Christ, to bring you closer to the Lord. That's sanctification. But when you trust Christ in that very moment of conversion, when's the last time you heard the word conversion, right? When you were converted, people don't like to talk about sin, conversion, hell, judgment. It's all in the Bible. It's all in the Bible. When you were converted, when God imparted spiritual life to you, he opened your eyes by faith to see the glorious grace of the gospel. And it's a work that God does. It's not a work that we do. God grants to us faith. He gives us the opportunity to look upon him and be saved. He forgives us. He, he, he relieves us of our guilt. He, 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 um, he regenerates us. He makes us new. He makes us into this new person. 
And you have this new worldview. God's your creator. Jesus is your savior. And now you have new affections and, this, and new values as you're growing in the knowledge of the Lord. Here's point number five. Jesus will raise the dead. Anybody excited about that? Amen for that, right? So listen, if you fear death, if you know Christ, you don't have to fear death. Jesus conquered death for you, trampled over, the, over death for you, conquered the grave, conquered hell, conquered your sin, removed all condemnation so you might be with him forever. Look what he says in verses 25 to 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and to those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus has clearly declared time and time again in the Gospel of John that he is indeed God's son. And and Jesus is saying now to the religious leaders that he will be the judge based on verse 27. And the reason that he's going to be the judge based on verse 27 is because he is the son of man. The, the, The title son of man is Luke, the, the gospel writer Luke, it's, it's his favorite title of Jesus, Son of Man. And it really speaks of Jesus' humanity. Jesus is uniquely qualified to judge us. How is he uniquely qualified to judge us? Well, two main reasons. Number one, he's God. Number two, he was fully man. Because he's fully man, because he walked in our shoes, because he experienced everything we've experienced, right? I don't have the verse listed for you, but in, um, in Hebrews 4.15 says, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus experienced life to the fullest, right? He took upon flesh in every conceivable way. It wasn't like, God was, you know, it wasn't like Jesus was God and and not man. No, he's fully man. He was tempted in every way. Every temptation you have ever faced in your life, Jesus faced it. This is why he's able to be the mediator, the go-between, the advocate. He's the one who was able to pay for all of our sin because he endured the temptations he, understand what, he understands what it's like to be tempted in every conceivable way. And because he's God and because he's fully man, because he, he passed the test. Because he passed the test, Jesus someday will speak to the dead, will speak to the dead and they'll come forth. You know, there's lots of differing opinions on end times, right? Some people have like, their charts and their diagrams. You know, they got it all figured out. Arrows going here, arrows going there. Okay, this is, you know, and they, and, and listen, let's, I have my opinion, okay? I believe that, I, be, I believe there is a rapture. I believe the scriptures teach 
or the scriptures point to the reality that the church is not going to be present during the tribulation, which is a total of seven years where God is going to just pour out his fury and his wrath and his judgments upon the world. I believe the church is going to be gone. Revelation chapter 4 to chapter 19, there's no mention of the church. You have witnesses. I think those witnesses are Elijah and Moses. Um, You have the 144,000, which, by the way, are not Jehovah's Witnesses. Just letting you know that, right? It's uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, 144,000 witnesses, Jewish believers who will be evangelizing those who are lost. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says that we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. The word caught up in the, in the Latin, it, it's harpazo, to be caught up with the Lord. It's, it's rapture, to be caught up with the Lord. The Bible says, I think in 1 or 2 Thessalonians, that we are not destined for wrath. You know, it talks about in Thessalonians that um, the restrainer, when the restrainer is removed... Right Then these things will take place. Well, it, it indicates that maybe the restrainer is the Holy Spirit at work in this world. And so my view of the end times is Christ, his return is imminent. I think, I think um, you know, Jesus talks about these birth pangs. I do believe that these birth pangs are leading to the end times and eventually his great return. But I believe his return is imminent. I believe his return can happen at any moment, in a twinkling of an eye. The thief comes in the night, unannounced, unnoticed. Jesus can come back at any moment. And this is why the Apostle John tells us to to really be walking in a manner worthy. Like when he does return, we're not ashamed at his coming. I think the church, and even for my own life at times, I feel sometimes we are not waiting and watching, maybe as much as previous generations. The Lord can come back at any moment. You know, Jesus is, um, is making this point that, listen, he's the judge, and he's going to, um, he's going to speak to the dead, and the dead will, will, will rise. We know in John chapter 11, he gets word about Lazarus, a dear friend of his, This was a family he was very, very close to. He would often retreat to their home, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And um, I think he would go go there and spend time with them and and share meals with them. He loved them. They loved him. And he gets word that Lazarus is dead. And he intentionally, based on scripture, he intentionally waits uh, three days. He he eventually makes his way there. And um, he goes to the tomb. And we know that he speaks, right? Lazarus, come forth. And what happens? Lazarus comes out of the tomb. There will be a day when Jesus will speak and people will be raised either to life, the resurrection of life, or those who have done evil will be resurrected to condemnation. You know, Philippians says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So everyone is going to experience a resurrection, either a resurrection to eternal life, a resurrection in the presence of God, a resurrection with Jesus, or a resurrection to condemnation. 
and hell, which is eternal separation from God for all eternity. When you think about the resurrection of the dead, everyone's going to rise from the grave. Everyone, Adolf Hitler, Caesar, Nero, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, all the apostles, and even yourself. Those who have done good will be raised to life. Those who have done evil will be raised to condemnation. Now you might say, well, so are you saying that, that one's salvation is dependent upon the works that they do here on earth? No. That's, that's the opposite of the gospel. It's the opposite of, of what Jesus has been saying. Those who trust Christ to be their savior, in verse 24, those who believe in him will inherit eternal life. This is what Christ has already told us, right? He is, he's, he's already spoken about this. If you believe in the son, you will have life. Our good works are not the basis of our salvation. It is the effect of our salvation. Good works is evidence. It's proof of your faith. Genuine faith in Christ is going to persevere. It's going to endure. I like to say it this way. Faith is the root of our salvation. Our works is the fruit of our salvation. So faith in Christ is the root, right? We, we're anchoring our lives to Christ by faith, but the fruit, the, the outflow, the growth, the evidence is works. We were created by God for good works. And so the fruit of our faith is going to produce righteous living. You know, sometimes we, um, we wrestle with this. We wrestle with this concept. Well, how can I know if someone is a genuine believer? Well, the Bible tells us a few different things, right? That you'll love God, you'll hate your sin, you'll love other people, right? The fruit of, of godly faith produces righteous living. But here's the reality. You don't know. Because that, the transformation that faith brings in someone's life Yes, there should be works and there should be evidence, but, but that transformation is spiritual. It's invisible. You can't see it. And at, at the end of the day, Jesus is the judge. We are not. And so we're going to stand before Jesus individually, and he's going to judge us. All right, here's point number six. We got to move because we got, we got more material. All right, here we go. Point number six. Uh, we're going to get through this, I promise, okay? Jesus always does the will of the Father. Look at verse 30. Look at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is saying, I'm the son of God, and I'm in perfect harmony with the father. I always do the will of my father. Now, can you imagine the reaction of the religious leaders? I mean, Jesus gives these bold claims about himself, and his relationship with the Father. He claims to be God. He claims to be the Son of God. Jesus exposes, right? He knows their hearts. He knows they're thinking, well, you can, you can make that claim. That doesn't mean it's true. And God says in the Old Testament that, that you can't believe unless there are multiple witnesses to verify what you have said. Look at Deuteronomy 19.15 about witnesses. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. This principle also carried over for the Jewish leaders. 
because in, in a Jewish court, you had to have more than one witness. You need at least two or three witnesses or your case would be thrown out. Jesus has just given us evidence that he's the son of God. Now he's going to show us who the witnesses are. It's as if he's in a a court of law and he calls witness after witness after witness to testify to who he is. You know, our secular culture You know, they say, well, Jesus, he's a good man. He's a moral teacher. Okay, maybe he was a prophet. You know, um, Jewish culture said, well, you know, he was an itinerant rabbi, um, political reformer, social activist. But Jesus says, "I'm, I'm more than a good man. I'm more than a political reformer. I'm more than a social activist, feeding the poor, you know, helping those who are downcast. I am the son of God. And how does he prove that? So the next few verses we're going to read, he gives us five witnesses. Witness number one, God the Father. So I want you to follow his logic because Jesus begins to just bring one witness to the stand, one after the other after the other. And he's driving home the point with the the religious leaders that he is the Son of God. Witness one, God the Father. Look at verse 31 and 32. If I alone bear witness about myself... My testimony is not true. Time out. That that, that doesn't sound right. What he's saying is, according to the viewpoint of the religious leaders, his testimony is not enough. Okay? It's not sufficient. Obviously, his testimony about himself is true. Okay? Because he makes lots of claims about who he is. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Look at verses 37, 38. Kind of, if you go forward a little bit. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe um, the one whom he has sent. So Jesus says, you've never seen him? You've never heard the voice of God. You do not even believe the one whom he has sent, which is me. You do not believe me because you do not believe my father's word. Two times the father spoke and bore witness to Jesus. Baptism, transfiguration. Both times the father said, what did he say? Beloved, right? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So the father bears witness about Jesus. Second witness, John the Baptist. So we've looked at John the Baptist a lot. I'm just going to just briefly skim through it a little bit. Verses 33 to 35. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. I want to read a few verses for you. Um, For sake of outline notes, I had to pull those. So John chapter 1, I want to read... um, Verses um, 19, I had to pull those notes, so 19 to 23. Listen to this, and this is the testimony of John. 
when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, so they sent a delegation from Jerusalem, the temple, religious leaders, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. The word Christ in the Greek is Christos. It's, it means Messiah. He says, I am not the Messiah. I'm not the chosen one. I'm not the anointed one. And then notice what, what happens next. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Because Malachi talked about a coming prophet, one like Elijah. We know that that's John the Baptist, okay? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Well, what does that mean? Most likely, that's a reference to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18, I think verse 15, when Moses is talking about, he tells the people, God is going to raise up a prophet among you someday. That he was foreshadowing um, Christ. And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. Uh, What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Look at verses 29 to 30. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Look at verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist declared that Jesus is or was the Messiah. John the Baptist said, I'm not the Messiah, but he pointed to the Messiah. He said, you know, he's not a political savior. He's not going to be this military general that's going to come and, and rescue you from the oppression and tyranny of Rome. He's going to give his life as a sacrifice. This is why John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is so clear about who Jesus is. That's why John said, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Third witness, miracles. The third witness is miracles. Look at verse 26. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. John records seven miracles for us in the Gospels, in his Gospel. And I believe all seven miracles are connected, um, most of them are connected to his I am statements. But John calls these miracles signs. And a sign is a symbol signifying a greater reality. The sign, the miracles that Jesus did pointed to a greater reality. What is that greater reality? That he's God, that he's the son of God, that he is the Messiah. Signs point to the deity of Christ. How do you explain the supernatural? I mean, a lot of people get really hung up on the supernatural and miracles and how could Jesus do this? There's no way he could have done this. Well, apart from his deity, There's no way he could. But because he was God, he was able to perform all miracles. He was able to allow the the blind to see, right? The deaf to hear, the mute to speak. He touched lepers who had leprosy and they were instantly healed. He cast demons out of people and, and the demons fled. He raised people back from the dead. 
a widow's son in name. Her husband passed away, she was a widow, and then her son passed away. Can you imagine the grief she was going through? Jesus, based on his timetable and a a moment of providence, God working all details out, Jesus arrives in this little name, in this little town called Nain, and he raises her boy literally back to life from the casket. There's probably professional mourners. People are wailing and, and screaming and weeping, and the, the grief is heavy. The sorrow is so deep. And Jesus, with the disciples, he raises this guy back from, back from the dead. He raises Lazarus back from the dead. How can he do that? Because he's God. That's how he can do it. I mean, even Nicodemus knew in, in John 3, 1 and 2. Boy, I'm, I'm really getting through it. We're, we're going to finish. Here we go. John 3, 1 and 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs, these miracles that you do unless God is with him. Even Nicodemus knew this ruler. He had political religious clout. He, he, he was a spiritual giant. Nicodemus was so confused, but he knew there was something unique and special about Jesus. And he wanted to have a conversation with him. And, and, and I, I think that conversation, I think it sent Nicodemus into a tailspin. He was so confused. He was like a, he was like a lost ball in a thick high grass, right? He was just gone. He was just so confused. But you know what? I think Nicodemus pondered and reflected on the conversation as Jesus connected the bronze serpent in numbers to himself. Listen, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus took the poison, right? Jesus, Jesus died for us. If we look to Jesus, we'll be healed. And I think Nicodemus at some point in his life, he looked to Jesus and he asked Christ to forgive him and save him because we know that Nicodemus helped with the burial, the burial of Jesus. You don't do that unless your life has been transformed by Christ. So, signs, miracles. Jesus, he performed these signs and these miracles because he was a merciful, compassionate God. But these works gave credibility or pointed to the reality that he was God. Fourth witness, scripture. Scripture. Look at verses 39 to 44. Um, Jesus said, you search the scriptures. The, the Old Testament scriptures, the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Let me give you the fifth witness and then we're just gonna kind of, I'm gonna bring it, bring it to a close here. The fifth witness is Moses testifies about me. In verse 45 to 47, Jesus says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. 
There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would, have, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Listen, Jesus is saying you search the scriptures, you know the scriptures. I mean, we know that, that many of the religious people, they had like the first five books of the Old Testament memorized verbatim. It was a big deal. They studied the Torah every single day. And Jesus is saying, listen, you missed the grand central point of the Torah, and that is, it's about me. If you believed in Moses, you would believe in me because Moses, Moses wrote about me. Let me say this. The scriptures point to Jesus. They point to Jesus as a priest. They point to Jesus as, as, as a king. And they point to Jesus as a, as a savior and as a prophet. The Bible is not just about information you know, Charles Spurgeon said, you know, the Bible's not there for information. It's, it's there for our transformation. The scriptures are there so that they would transform our lives. The purpose of the Bible is not to get lost in all the details. And we can get, we can get kind of lost sometimes. The purpose of scripture is for you to know Jesus. That's the purpose of the Bible, that, that Jesus would be seen as Savior and judge and king and prophet and priest, the one who will sit in judgment and, and the one who will sit and, and, judge, uh, and judge us and judge, judge everyone who's ever uh, breathed. Jesus said, listen, the Bible's about me. The Old Testament, the New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, every book, every chapter, every verse, every story points to Jesus. The Bible, God did not give us the Bible so that we could become better, you know, like morally right people. God gave us the Bible so that the Bible would change our lives. That by faith in Christ, placing our trust in Jesus, he would transform us and we would never, ever be the same ever again. Let's believe John's gospel. Let's believe Jesus' words that Jesus indeed is the son of God. Amen? Let's pray.